upstairs. But I would like you to turn them off. Oh. Just in case. All right, here I go with the obligatory joke. Obligatory. <laughs> All right. So Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson went camping. They pitched their tents under the stars and went to sleep. Sometime in the middle of the night, Holmes woke Watson up and said, Watson, look up at the stars and tell me what you see. Watson replied, I see millions and millions of stars. Holmes said, and what do you deduce from that? Watson replied, well, if there are millions of stars, and if even a few of those have planets, it's quite likely there are some planets like Earth out there, and if there are a few planets like Earth out there, there might also be life. And Holmes said, Watson, you idiot. It means somebody stole our tent. <laughs> okay, so sometimes the correct answer just isn't that complicated. <laughs> Throughout this letter to the Galatians, Paul has been letting them have it with both barrels. Before he wraps up his letter, he stops to give some practical advice to those suffering from the mess wrought by the Judaizers. In his book on Galatians, Liberated for Life, John MacArthur states that the most important issue facing Christians is holiness. He asserts that what is truly affected in the world is the overflow of a godly life. Holiness is Paul's subject as he moves into Galatians chapter 6. Paul addresses the practical consequences of the false doctrine taught by the Judaizers the havoc wrought by theology based upon justification by human effort and compliance to law and ritual. Those who have been taken in seek to be justified on the basis of human efforts, submission to ritual circumcision, obedience to dietary laws, and the keeping of the Jewish religious calendar. These people seek, as they're seeking to be justified by human means, they, are, they risk being suffered, severed from Christ and falling from grace. If the law is indeed fulfilled in love, as Paul has been saying, there are specific points of application that need to be made in response to the turmoil created by the Judaizers. In the first 10 verses of chapter 6, Paul gives some practical advice applying the law's fulfillment in love to specific situations. Verse 1, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves as you also may be tempted. How do you respond when you find out that your brother or sister is engaged in a sinful activity? Do you say, gotcha? <laughs> or do you say, you call yourself a Christian and you're doing blah, 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 blah? I don't think so. As believers, we are centered under God and our identity is found in Him. So we don't have to compare ourselves to others. Nobody gets away with sin. Sin has its own consequences. It's not our role to catch them. It's not our opportunity to feel superior to them. The situation is a chance to love them and come alongside of them. The word used for restore here in this verse is a word used for the setting of a dislocated or broken bone. 
You set the bones so that you can make it useful to the whole body once more. Naturally, this must be done with much care. If someone has a broken arm, you wouldn't dream of taking them by the hand and yanking them to their feet. The object is for those walking by the Spirit to humbly bring the brother back into his rightful place of fellowship in the body of Christ. We are responsible for how we treat others, remembering that at any time it could be us falling into sin. Verses 2 through 5. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry his own load. If we are to restore others to full usefulness, then we have to help bear their burdens. Burdens are weights too heavy for individuals to shoulder alone. Anything that oppresses the believer spiritually, that threatens to induce him to sin, or keeps him sinning is a burden. Christianity isn't a spectator sport. It isn't always enough to pick somebody up. You may have to keep holding her up, support her, pray with her, keep in close contact. As we help others, we fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, John 13, 34. In verse 3, Paul says that if you think you are a bit superior to people with problems, then you have another thing coming. Your effectiveness as a Christian is a big fat zero if you can't see yourself for what you really are. A sinner who can't be justified by your own obedience, but only on the basis of the merits of Jesus Christ. Feelings of superiority come from comparing ourselves with other people instead of measuring ourselves against God's standard. Listen, we can always find someone with larger faults than we have. Unfortunately, the other guy's faults aren't our standard. We must examine our own lives and see if they pass divine inspection. If they do, we can rejoice in our own growth, not in comparison to how badly someone else is doing. When push comes to shove, everyone has to account for himself. Most commentators think this thought of each carrying his own load is a reference to the Day of Judgment when each will be responsible for his own life and work. While this may be true, there is also an application to the way in which we are called to live out our lives in Christ. We each have personal Christian responsibilities that are ours alone to bear. Verse 6. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. instructor. Most commentators see in verse 6 instruction concerning Christian giving. Those taught have a responsibility to support those doing the teaching. But some argue that giving is not the subject here. All good things has a far more general meaning than worldly goods. Probably it refers to blessings of the Christian faith. Translated literally from the Greek, it says, let him who receives instruction share with him who gives instruction in all good things. The word share means to have or to hold equally. It really means a common fellowship. 
So the learner is to have a common fellowship with him who is doing the teaching. But not so fast, ladies. This doesn't let you off the hook. You still need to financially support those who teach you. Verses 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Just as there are physical laws in the universe, there are also moral and spiritual laws. The popular view today is that there are no absolutes, that all truth is relative. When it comes to questions of right and wrong, our society is quite flexible. Such things are left up to the individual and or the situation. All we have to do is look at our world today to see what a harvest of bitterness and death has been reaped. The scriptures tell us that we can't do our own thing. There are moral laws that are just as absolute as physical ones. God is not inconsistent. If he has built a universe that is governed by absolute physical laws, laws that never change, your coffee left on a counter will always become cool, gravity remains steady, you're not flying out into space one day and so grounded the next that you can't lift up your foot. The speed of light remains constant. It's 186,000 miles per second, no matter if it comes from a blazing star or your flashlight. The Earth rotates in 24 hours. If all these laws are true, and they are, then you can bet your baby that the moral and spiritual world will be governed by laws just as absolute. You reap what you sow. What would you think if someone planted corn and pumpkins came up? Crazy, right? This just doesn't happen. Just so, a person can't claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and then believe the false gospel that the Judaizers were teaching. Nor can a person claim to be a Christian when their lives are characterized by the fruit of the flesh instead of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul isn't talking about the person struggling with sin. If that were the case, none of us would ever be saved. The Judaizers were teaching that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross was not sufficient to justify to justify, and that Christians must submit to ritual circumcision, keep the feast days, obey the dietary laws in order to be justified. This is clearly a false gospel and denies the true gospel taught by Paul, that we are justified by the merits of Jesus Christ received by faith alone. Paul's warning to the Galatians is crystal clear. If you sow to the flesh, if you believe the false teaching of the Judaizers, you will produce a crop consistent with a false gospel and will not be able to stand in the judgment. God will not be mocked. He will not be impressed with your self-righteous offering, a harvest of destruction. In contrast, 
The one who believes the true gospel taught by Paul sows a seed that produces a crop which will manifest the fruit of the Spirit, and the result will be equally certain, eternal life. Paul also reminds his hearers not to become weary in doing what is good, from believing the gospel and sowing to the Spirit, because at the proper time, that's when Christ comes back, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. As we have opportunity, we are to do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. The Judaizers were seeking to divide Christ's church, while Christian believers who accept the true gospel were to embrace all those who struggle, but who claim Jesus Christ as their only hope of heaven. It's discouraging to do the right thing and receive no word of thanks or see no tangible results. But Paul challenged the Galatians, and he challenges us to keep on doing good and to trust God for the results. Verse 11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Paul usually dictated his epistles to a secretary. At the end of the letter, he would take the pen write a brief conclusion, and sign in his own hand. He did this to avoid possible forgeries. In the early church, forging letters under the names of the apostles was common. Some commentators, however, believe that Galatians is one letter Paul didn't dictate. They believe he wrote it entirely himself. According to Greek construction, the more correct translation would be, I wrote instead of I write. This would indicate that Paul is referring to the entire letter, not just tacking on a closing note. Why does Paul bother to say this? A person with poor eyesight usually has large handwriting, and Paul might have had a problem with this. Some commentators feel he wrote with large letters for emphasis. Still others think he was treating his readers like children and rebuking their spiritual immaturity. But there is another explanation for the large letters. There were two styles of Greek writing during Paul's day. One was liter literary unsealed, which were unconnected large or capital letters used by the common people, much like our printing today, I would guess. The other was cursive, neat, well-formed letters used by professional scribes and scholars. Paul's use of unsealed letters suggests that this was not a profession, that he was not a professional scribe, that the letter wasn't written by a professional scribe. I like the idea of Paul writing in all bold caps, don't you? Okay, so which is it? Writing a brief note at the end of the writing or the entire letter? Well, it beats me later. I report, you decide. <laughs> Verses 12 and 13. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. Paul once again is dealing with these hypocritical false teachers who were trying to make a good impression outwardly but who themselves didn't obey the very same law they tell their own converts they must obey. Paul warns, they urge you to be circumcised. 
deceiving you into taking upon yourselves the yoke of the law. When the Judaizers not only don't keep the law themselves, but their motivation has to do with escaping persecution because of the stigma attached to the cross. They weren't concerned about the welfare of these people or the glory of God, but only about their own safety and reputation. For the cross of Jesus Christ is both a stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to Greeks. 1 Corinthians 1.23 The Jews were offended by the idea of their Messiah dying in such a bloody, horrible way. They preached law, always avoiding the cross. The Judaizers had superficially identified with Jesus as the Messiah. They were not saved because they didn't believe in the all-sufficiency of Christ's death for salvation. But as far as unbelieving Jews were concerned, these pseudo-Christian Judaizers were genuine believers and targets for contempt. The Judaizers thought they could avoid persecution by adding the provision that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. In this way, they hoped to stay in the good graces of the Jewish community. They were trying to play both ends against the middle. They wanted to sound like Christians, and they wanted to announce they were winning Jewish followers at the same time. The whole thing was a front. They thought everyone would assume they were godly, holy people, but Paul wasn't fooled. Verses 14 through 16. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. The Judaizers saw justification as the fruit of human effort, so it was no big deal to them to remove the offense of the cross. Paul makes it clear that it is his desire to boast only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So why would Paul choose to boast about the cross, an instrument of torture reserved only for the worst of criminals? With his impressive Jewish resume and his experience of the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, why would he boast about the first century equivalent of the electric chair or the gas chamber? To those living in that time, the cross indicated that our Lord died the death that one would expect of a convicted serial killer or a terrorist. Such a message was utterly offensive to a Jew and beyond comprehension to a Hellenistic Greek and a citizen of Rome. The Greeks viewed their gods as immortal. Not only is the cross a picture of shame and degradation, but the Greeks found it difficult at best to believe the notion of a God dying at all, much less in order to redeem others. The cross simply made no sense to them. The Jews regarded crucifixion with horror. They made no distinction between a tree and a cross and automatically applied to those crucified the terrible statement of the law that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Deuteronomy 21:23. Why then would Paul choose to boast about something that was so unpopular as to actually be repulsive to his audience? Because he knew that if there is no cross, there is no gospel. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only way 
for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God who is too pure to even look upon sin. While the cross may be foolishness to the Greek and a stumbling block to the Jew, Paul knows that the cross is the power of God for those who are being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18 The cross is the only means by which God seeks to reconcile sinners to himself, and the cross will always remain an offense to all who seek to stand before God and boast about their accomplishments and conformity to external rituals. The cross also turns aside God's anger towards his people. In Romans 3.25, Paul declares that God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have full assurance that God's anger toward your sin has been dealt with. The debt you owe for the guilt of your sins has been paid in full. And this is true because Christ's death is sufficient to take away all of the guilt of all of your sins, something the Judaizers were denying. Therefore, Paul desires to boast only in the cross of Christ, because to boast in anything else is to imply that men and women can be restored to a right relationship to God by some other means than through the sacrificial death and perfect righteousness of Christ. That is exactly what the Judaizers were arguing, that we are not justified through faith, faith in Jesus Christ alone, but we are justified by faith in Christ plus submission to ritual circumcision, plus the keeping of dietary laws, plus the keeping of the Jewish religious calendar, plus obedience to the law of Moses. John MacArthur writes, We say God is holy, but do we realize what that means? He is perfect, and the heaven he occupies is as perfect as he is. Unless we are holy as God is holy, we cannot enter heaven. Does this seem unfair? Not if you are willing to admit God is God. He runs the universe. He makes all rules and renders judgment when they are broken. Some people don't like the idea of God as a judge. They want a loving, accepting, understanding God who will let them come up with their own standards. They don't want to accept God's standards for becoming holy enough to get into heaven. But with heaven and salvation, God has specified the terms. We come his way or we don't come at all. Those who refuse to take the character of God seriously make a fundamental error. God is not a senile Santa Claus who winks at wrongdoing. He has set down moral laws, and when they are broken, it is sin. God is a loving God. He wants to forgive sin, but he cannot do it arbitrarily and be true to his own character as a just and holy God. The love of God forgives us, but the justice of God crucified Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for sin. It was the only way. Without the cross, there is nothing to agree to. God's love provides the cross and our salvation." End quote. Paul also chooses to boast in the cross because the cross is the pattern for the Christian life, the pattern for those who walk in the Spirit 
who are free to serve one another in love. Not only has Christ been crucified to remove the curse of sin, but through the cross, Paul says, the world has been crucified to me. The world will reject those who believe just as the world rejected the Lord and I to the world. Paul rejects the standards and values of the world. Those principles of the world championed by the Judaizers in which it is understood that people reach heaven by being good and avoid hell by not doing anything too terrible. When all is said and done, Paul can say, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Through faith in Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile participate in the restoration of all things that have been brought about by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The true Israel of God are those who participate in the new creation, those who walk in the Spirit and for whom Christ has died. Verses 17 and 18. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. The Judaizers, who are clearly not the new Israel of God, are now put on notice. Let no one cause Paul trouble, for he bears on his body the marks of Jesus. Paul concludes the epistle as he began, asserting his authority as an apostle. In effect, he is telling them that he bears the scars of Jesus, not just of circumcision. So they should stop questioning his authority. Paul also finishes his letter on a note of grace. After all the worry and anxiety the Galatians had caused him, Paul ends his letter by calling them brothers and sisters, a reminder of their unity in the faith and their relationship with Jesus Christ. How fitting that Paul ends his letter by mentioning grace, the keynote of Galatians. Grace, God's unmerited favor, is what changed Paul from a murderous legalist to a loving servant of Christ. Grace had freed the Galatians from their bondage and sin under the law. Christ, grace is what would keep them free in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, how wonderful that all the promises found in Christ are ours. The same Savior who loved us and gave himself for us comes to us through your word. You have promised, Lord, to save all who trust in you, and your word is true. Thank you, Lord, that there is freedom from the yoke of the law and bondage to sin. Thank you that we can come in confidence crying, Abba, Father, and find rest and renewal in the forgiveness of our sins. Help us, Lord, to never boast in our own righteousness. Help us to pray as Paul did. May I never boast except in the, Christ, in the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, ladies.